0: in church turn with me if you would to in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6 and happy birthday it's actually the uh, it's the exact date September 25th 2011 was when we first met on Sunday morning together And this message isn't going to have anything to do with our birthday. <laughs> I have done that from time to time, and uh, it probably will be time to do that again soon, but maybe next year. But I'm not feeling well. I don't entirely know what's going to come out of my mouth because my I've warned my small group several times. We have... Probably some of the most interesting small group discussions when I'm not feeling well. Because I just don't have a filter. I don't have the same level of filtering ability. (laughs) And so, uh, fair warning, things could get weird in Genesis 6. Let's just read what we're not going to cover the whole chapter today. Lord willing, we'll cover the rest in chapter 7 next week, but... Let's just read, beginning in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every... The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every... Father, I do pray that through much weakness and through much fear and trembling in our midst, that you would use your word to instruct us, to lead us to submit to the Lord God, uh, the one who made the heavens and the earth, to um, walk faithfully in your ways. Encourage us and correct us and warn us and help us and change us in the way we live before you, help us. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this is one of those passages of Scripture where you, you read, and uh, you know your summary is is kind of like what. And you, it's it's one of those passages of Scripture where you read, and you, and you just wish God gave you more detail. You know, you wish He filled in some gaps. You know, I mean, there's 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 several words here and phrases that. Um, are, uh, uh, can be a bit challenging to understand what in the world is going on, and why is this even here, and what in the world, what, why is this passage here for us, and, and, and what are we supposed to actually make of it, and, um, and so we're kind of just going to, uh, you know, in the context in Genesis 5, you have, you know, from just a, pr- a practical standpoint, the genealogy connects Seth to Noah, you know? And so that's kind of the, you know, in Moses' writing, that's what's happening. And, if, and of course, it's theological writing, and we dealt with some of the theology of Genesis 5 last week, and um, some of the points being made about the image of God, and in conflict with the image of Adam that we now possess in our corrupt nature, uh, and that we all die because we possess Adam's nature. And, but uh, it connects to Noah, and uh, we all know the big picture story of the flood, so there's, it's not like we're going to um, find all kinds of surprising truths uh, as we get into the rest of chapter 6 and chapter 7, um, humbling and fearful truths, uh, though they may, and, and, and truths to rejoice in. You realize Noah is a story of salvation. You know, Noah's Ark is a story not just of judgment, but of salvation, and sometimes we lose sight of that, but this first part of chapter 6, um, we run into some interesting things in the background of the old world, in the background of what's happening in the, in the context of the world that God has made, um, this, is, this is the context of the old world, and Uh, So, it shouldn't surprise us that when we read the Bible, we run into some things that are different than we've thought before, and especially for Western Christians who have become so materialistic, we've really become so materialistic that we've driven people to a hyper-supernatural, charismatic church thinking that was the solution to all of us Reformed people who were dry and anti-supernatural and you know, as if there was no- nothing actually existing in a spiritual realm um, apart from what we can see. And in the Reformed church, we've hardly been any different than you know, the average um, you know, materialistic, scientistics you know, professor over at IU in uh, recognizing the real- spiritual realities that are actually at work in the world And so this is one of those passages that begins to unpack the reality of the world that God has made, that we actually live in, and that is really real. And it doesn't always apply to your senses. And so that's why some of you will walk out of here this morning discounting uh, what Scripture teaches. Because you're a materialist. And you will think, I don't know who that guy is, or I don't know him well enough. And what he's teaching me is crazy. And that's what you'll think. That's what you'll think. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses I point to this morning or how many that I don't point to that are still there. If I went to all of them, it wouldn't matter to you because the truth of the matter is you don't actually believe the Bible. And, um, well, you refuse to accept the words of God. And so, we get this context that leads us into the flood because it's the context that highlights the wickedness and corruption that has filled the earth. And So, when we walk into this passage, we immediately are confronted with questions. Many, many questions. Like, when man began to multiply over the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. Okay, so we immediately run into this question. Who are the sons of God? Who are they? And three major interpretations. One is that here uh, you have the sons of God who come in... uh, um, One is from the line of Seth, meaning a godly line, meaning these are godly sons of God, one, and then they are intermarrying with the daughters of Cain, you know, so the idea thing, if you think later in Israel, the intermarriage uh, with foreign nations, that's that's the idea, Um, and so there's that interpretation. The second interpretation is that the sons of God are like, think like the king uh, who took Abraham's wife right? You know, so they're tyrants. They're kings who are tyrants, who just do as they please. And they're like the king who takes Abraham's wife. And so both of those could bear out some example in Scripture as it unfolds. Um, the, here's what I think the problem with both of those interpretations is, is I, I, I think it's nearly impossible to conclude um, when you... Really study this out through the whole picture of the way Scripture presents this. I think it's very difficult to conclude that the sons of God are um, men. I think it's very difficult to conclude that the sons of God are men. Whatever kind of men they might be, it's very difficult to conclude that. And so, what? what, what and so, I'll, I'll, I'll get to some passages of Scripture in a moment. But so, if that's the case, then. There, something spiritual and supernatural would be happening here, and you would have something, some beings that are called the sons of God who are supernatural taking women to be their wives and producing offspring. Okay, so that's a wild claim. And so let me, just, let me just start with one passage of Scripture, and in this one, one passage of Scripture can kind of get us at least beginning to think in the right direction, and I'll just tell you, there's a lot of Scripture that kind of speaks in, in, in these terms, way more than you think, and the reason that you don't know they're there is because anytime you've ever read them, you just kind of went, <laughs> you know? I have a friend who says we file things in our weird box. (laughs) We just just file it away. You forget that it ever existed. You have no idea what's going on, and so you just kind of, like, I'm moving on from that. We don't go there, you know? And so, um, but here, listen, listen to this. This is Job. This is the Lord speaking. And he's humbling Job when he speaks to him. He says... Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Man, what a question for our age, you know? God could speak to our age. Who is this that darkens counsel by words? Endless amounts of words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? You know, the the foundations of the earth. Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So, we have uh, two words here, or two phrases, the morning stars and the sons of God. And they shouted for joy at the foundational creation of the earth. And the whole point here is Job, you weren't here. The implication is that there weren't men here because Adam was put in the world and Eve was put in the world when the world was made. And so there's some sort of being here, referred to as the sons of God and as the morning stars, who were present singing for joy in the actual creation of the world. So, who are they? Well, there's some kind of divine beings. You know, the, the, easy word, the easy way to explain them is just to say they're angels. Um, and uh, there's a, But there's a lot of words that Scripture uses for spiritual divine beings. Divine not meaning that they are God, but divine beings meaning they are created beings with a supernatural power, And uh, authority. And so the words that Scripture uses that you're familiar with, you know, think about words like principalities, powers, rulers, you know, dominions, authorities, watchers. um, All of these words, and and there's many more that, that fill all of Scripture that start to unpack for us a bit of this spiritual reality that there are these. Divine beings, oftentimes referred to as sons of God, or here's a word that's often used in Scripture: little g gods. Little g gods, and um, it's a it's 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 all throughout your Bible. And, And and here's the way that you always think about the little g gods when you see it in Scripture: you think that oh well, you always you always know these are false gods but what you think about them is you think that they are imaginations. You actually don't think that there's any reality to them. You think that they're just little idle statues. Right? But think about that for a second. Just think for a second about that. Okay, so when you read Isaiah 40-48, to 48, and the Lord God exalts Himself in His incomparability... To idol gods. How much sense does it make for the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of the heavens and earth, to merely exalt himself against little idol statues? How much sense does that make? It doesn't make any sense. What what drives the incomparability of the glory of God is not that the gods are just imaginations... Or that they are uh, just idol statues, what drives the argument of the incomparability of God Himself is that He is the God of gods, the big G God of the divine being gods, who are the gods of the nations. And so I want to further the picture just a little bit. I'm not going to get into all of the the details of this. Um, I'd be glad to get you some resources on this if you want. But just Psalm 82. Listen to this God has taken his place in the divine council. Okay, divine council. What's that? Weird box. Listen, in the midst of the gods, little g-gods, he holds judgment. Okay, weirder box, right? If little g-gods just meant statues, this is just like, the word, the, the word of the Lord just makes no sense, right? It is comical, isn't it? It's just comical. And see, I'm using comedy to help you understand... To think in the words of Scripture, to think in the world of the Bible, to think about the world that you live in, actually the way the world is that you live in. You know, rather than living in a make-believe world that satisfies your materialistic mind, God has taken His place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Now listen to this. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. This is God, the big G God, speaking to these beings. I said, you are gods. Little g, gods. The word is Elohim. It's used of God Himself. It's used of all of these divine beings. Little g, gods. It's the same word. The word Elohim is not only used for God the Father Almighty. You know, it's, it's used for um, many of these divine beings, these divine spirit beings. I said, you are gods. Sons of the Most High. All of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Okay, so, here you have the connection between the word gods and sons of the Most High and God is speaking to them, and so the, the the picture is in the picture is just that God Himself has divine beings that He has made. They are created, but they are supernatural in power and uh, glorious in many ways, and they are around Him. He speaks to them. They have a job to do in the world that God has made. And so, historically, Christians who weren't materialistic like us and who thought we could uh, understand everything by just saying, or reject everything, by saying, well, that's crazy. Except what do you do with this in the Bible? Maybe you're crazy. Maybe materialism is crazy. Maybe God's actually not crazy. And so, in the world of history and in Christian mindset, it would have been, uh, there would have been nothing shocking about anything that I'm saying to you. Nothing at all. And they, and they, and, and, and they would, and the Jews would have understood when they read their Old Testament. That we're not just talking about men here in Genesis chapter 6, when we're talking about the sons of God. And so what do you have then? You have this shocking reality that this, these divine beings that God has made of supernatural power who are gathered around Him have actually rebelled and pursued perversion with women. And it's the point is not to go, well, these are just men. It's, it's actually an increased wickedness even than that, because these in the presence of God himself have uh, defiled themselves and defiled the earth and produced these children that are called the Nephilim. And you say, well, it's neat, Pastor Josh, that you brought a novel teaching to us today. But it's, it's the least novel of the historical positions on this passage. It's the least novel. So Calvin's wrong on this, because Augustine was wrong on this, but um, it's the least novel of any of the three historical positions on this passage, meaning it's not just I didn't just you know, come up with some fanciful teaching. We have to make sense of what the scripture says. Okay. So you realize this comes up in your New Testament. And there are two passages in your New Testament that it's, you're pretty hard-pressed to find anything else in the Bible that they refer to except Genesis chapter 6. But you always read them and then filed them away in your weird box and you never connected the dots. And, so that, and because you did that, then you just made my life harder this morning. Second Peter. Just listen. Chapter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If He did not spare the ancient world, you see the connection between those two things if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if you rescued righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. There's an emphasis on the sensual, sensuality of the wicked. And we'll see this again in just a moment. For as that righteous man lived among them, day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, just like you torment your righteous soul, when the Kinsey Institute finally makes a statue to honor Alfred Kinsey and put it on display for how much of a great man they think he is. You realize his his wickedness is so abominable, I, I can't even speak it up here. When people ask me, what is wrong with Bloomington, and I start to explain, and I say, I'm not even going to say to you, it is the worst of the worst wickedness that Alfred Kinsey committed his research to and propagated as normal behavior for the rest of the world to indulge in. It's the worst of the worst. And so I don't even say it. That's how I say it. It's so shameful. It's, it makes me more sick. All right. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, which is just such a beautiful, encouraging word for those of us living in a wicked world that Noah was rescued amidst all of the ungodliness, and God is keeping us, and we will be rescued from all of the ungodliness. But the point being, the angels, their sin, God keeping them for judgment, connected with Noah. Now, here's where it gets even more specific. Um, in Jude. In Jude chapter 1. Right? Weird box passage. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Right? This is the same thing. Just as, and this is the key piece, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, and here's the key phrase, which likewise... The cities likewise with Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels just as Sodom and Gomorrah, which likewise with these other cities, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire or other flesh or strange flesh. Indulged in sexual immorality and pursued strange flesh serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of Eternal fire. Now, so there's a connection between the sexual immoralities of angels and them pursuing strange flesh and Sodom and Gomorrah and the pursuit of strange flesh. Right? Can we just die with the stupid idea that the problem with Sodom and Gomorrah was a lack of hospitality? I mean, it was. When you read the story, it's not a hospitable place. Go hang out in the square. Stupid. It's just stupid. And so, here's the question. What other place, what in the world is Peter... Right? Peter's a follower of Jesus. He's an apostle. He's witnessing to the Gospel everywhere he goes. He's not afraid to talk about these things. About angels and their sins. And Jude is not afraid to talk about these things. He, they actually both wrote to churches to teach them things. See how just weird we are today? We just don't want to deal with reality. We just don't want to deal with reality. And Jude very specifically connects the sin of angels to sexual immorality. Strange flesh. Spirit pursuing human flesh. Divine being pursuing human flesh. Leaving their domain. their domain at one time in the council of holy ones that are in the presence of God. Holy ones is another common phrase used for these beings, uh, divine beings in the presence of God. What other passage in Scripture do you have? Like Remove Genesis 6 from your Bible. And now come up with a a place where Jude and the Apostle Peter are referring to. Find an explanation for it. And then find an explanation that doesn't actually have to do with sexual immorality. Because that's what it says. So, now look. I'm not going to fight about this with every person under the sun who has a different interpretation of Genesis 6. That's pretty low on my priority list. But at the same time, it's my job to teach you what the Bible says. And it's my job to teach you what my convictions about what the Bible says are. And, and so I don't, I don't know how you actually get out from under this without kind of really eliminating a lot of passages of Scripture So where I come from, I I would have at one time would have thought the sons of God are, you know, these powerful kings who are despots or tyrants. That's what I would have thought for years. Um, The problem is, is how do you actually reconcile this with the rest of the passages of scripture that also bring up the same kind of content? So my position over the years has changed on this because of that. I would have been content at one time to think, well, these are despotic tyrant kings, but then been fine with having the rest of the passages in my weird box. Because that could have helped me kind of just stay there. You know, This is a merely human thing that's less weird, and I can get behind that. So you have this tremendous wickedness. Tremendous wickedness happening here. Where those divine beings have actually um, left their proper domain that God had given them to stay within. And this is important for us to think about today because the rebellion against the rebellion against God today is because of us not wanting to remain within the domain that God has given us. And so male, doesn't. we've broken the bounds of what male is, and female, we've broken the bounds of what female is, and in the same kind of sexual perversion as Sodom have pursued strange flesh. And so the sins that we see today are the same kinds of things. And this is a, this is, this is a great wickedness. And so these divine beings, um, many of whom, the ones certainly here, have persisted in their hatred and despising of God to refuse to live within the domain that God made them to live within. And when we refuse to live within the domain that God made us to live within, sexual perversion is the result. And so the world is filled with the wickedness of divine beings and their perversion with human women and then we have this question then well who are the Nephilim well they apparently are the hybrid offspring of these divine beings and human women and they're giants they're giants A little bit of debate about whether Nephilim means fallen ones or whether it means giants um I think probably the most likely case is they're giants, and not just from the etymology of the word, but from the context where this comes up in Scripture. The Nephilim don't actually only just show up right here. It's actually fascinating what the text says. Do you see it there in verse 4? The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. Now that's an... When when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these, referring to the Nephilim, were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So the Nephilim were on the Earth in those days. Now what are the Nephilim? Well, they are these hybrid children, and they're giants. If you what, what happens when Israel goes, uh, goes in to spy out the land? What do they see? Right? The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, which is a really fascinating phrase because it means that the Nephilim didn't only exist pre-flood. They didn't entirely get wiped out as if there would never be any more in the flood. It means they got wiped out in the flood. But it means that the sons of God... Were not, had not ceased doing what they were doing in a post-flood world. okay? It's because the evidence is really clear in Numbers chapter um, 13. Let me just read it to you. So Israel goes in to spy out the land and what, what, what do they see? Verse 33 of Numbers 13. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak. So they're also referred to as the sons of Anak or the Anakim. The sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. We seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. In other words, to them... Looking at us, we were like grasshoppers to them, and we seemed ourselves like grasshoppers when we looked at them. And so why were they shaking in their boots? Right? Because Nephilim doesn't just mean fallen ones, it, it means giants. There, were this, there was a large race of men that came as from uh, being the hybrid children of divine beings, and human women in the now extremely corrupt world post-fall. And in the middle of uh, the fall, there's this wicked, persistent, we usually just call them evil angels, persistent wickedness that's supernatural and that exists all around us. Like we would like to think that the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places when we read Ephesians 6, we just would like to think that there's no real supernatural powers anywhere at work. When we see, when we, when we think about all uh, the gods of the nations are worthless idols, we would just like to think that all that that means is all the gods of the nations are just little statues. But the Apostle Paul is clear in the New Testament that there's something behind the statue. There's divine beings behind the statue. Sacrifices to demons, he says. All the gods of the nations are worthless idols. Or we would like to think that they're just imaginary. Like people just imagined all of the gods that they worship. The point is, all the gods of the nations that God has, has given them real authority to. Rulers. Authorities. These are the words used. Over the rebellious nations. To lead them astray. To lead them in wickedness. To lead them to despise God. It doesn't all just come from men. It comes from divine beings who rule over them. Which is why it's glorious that you have Christ as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He's the God of Gods. He rules all the divine beings and all of the nations. So, um, the Nephilim are these giant race of men. Some would argue, um, and I haven't, you know, I don't have a dogmatic position about this, but some would argue, and it, it would make sense, that demons aren't just angels, aren't these divine beings necessarily who rebelled against God, but are the disembodied spirits left when the Nephilim die. You know, so when the human portion of them dies, the supernatural portion of them, the spirit remains and that demons are the disembodied spirits of the dead Nephilim. It's not really that outrageous, you know. Um, And and the reason it's not that outrageous, at least scripturally, is because angels aren't always clamoring after a body. There's a few times in scripture where angels actually take on human form. You know, there's, there are places in Scripture where this happens. With the pre-incarnate Christ and Abraham, they they show up, and uh, there's these divine beings with um, the pre-incarnate Christ in, in that story with Abraham. And then uh, there's, uh, in Hebrews 13 too, some have entertained angels unaware in that interesting passage about hospitality. Hospitality to strangers. So, but you don't see angels constantly clamoring after a body, but you do see demons constantly doing this in the New Testament, right? Um, they're always seeking to inhabit a body. and This is why we have things like demon possession. This is why we, you know, what it, when, when Jesus casts out the legion, what do they beg for? <laughs> How about the pigs? And so they receive the uh, they head into the pigs, and so demons do this, and it would make sense if they once had a body, but now we're not embodied, that there would be this clamoring for a body. So that's at least the argument for who the Nephilim, the Nephilim are. And I just want to say this, okay? There are weird things in the world we live in. I've just had to fight some of you to get any of you to ever believe this. But it's just because you're materialistic snobs. You are. You're materialistic snobs. And you also don't know how to treat people. You also don't know how to treat people. You say, well, as I'm getting fired up now, I had to stand up. Well, you don't know how to treat people because... People have seen all kinds of weird things for a long, long time in the world we live in, and here's how you treat them. They're all crazy. They're all crazy. Every last one of them is crazy. They're a bunch of nuts. Right? Anybody who ever saw a UFO, right? until we actually started releasing the, all of the footage and the documents recently, until there's just weird stuff in our world. It's weird. No, because the world is materialistic. Surely there's... It's either either alien or China has some pretty serious technology that has outpaced us by, like, a long... Well, more than that. More than 150 years. 150 years of men isn't going to make up for supernatural realities. So... But the point being, they're way ahead of us, right? So... People have seen weird things for a long time. And they're not all crazy people. What do you do? What do you do with this? What do you do with 100,000 people? And it's more than that. It's more than that. I'm just using numbers to quantify this somehow. What do you do with thousands upon thousands of thousands of people who are out in the woods and they see something weird? They all report the same thing. They're now scared to death. They're now scared to death of going in the woods. And they've been guides and hunters in the woods for 30 years. They see something weird and they're not going back. And they all say the same thing about what they saw. What do you do with that? All I want you to do with it is just to accept there's weird things in the world. And not everyone is crazy. You live in a world that's weird. There are dynamics at play that don't fit your thinking. That's why you think I'm crazy just for teaching you Genesis chapter 6. And I think you're crazy for writing off a bunch of passages of scripture. So what do we do with this? We don't write people off constantly. That's why I say you don't know how to treat people, because as soon as somebody says something that sounds weird to you, you know, you just think you just think, well, they're crazy. I don't want anything to do with them, or they're just, it's all about their own vainglory and them making a name for themselves, and it's like, can't you see that they're actually giving eyewitness to this at great suffering to themselves? <laughs> you don't write people off like they're all crazy. You actually understand there's a weird world and there's weird things in our world. Well, what weird things do you think are in our world, Pastor Josh? Lots of weird things. And I don't have a lot of explanation for them. Just lots of weird things. What else do we do with this? You have to be warned that you absolutely must not pursue strange flesh. You may not intermarry with unbelievers. You may not pursue the sins of Bloomington. I mean, every time I just go around Bloomington, it's like, I feel like I know better what Sodom was like than most people in the United States. You may not pursue the sins of Bloomington. You must hold fast to your faith in Jesus Christ. you may not pursue sexual relations outside of marriage. Monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. Are you a contribution to the wickedness upon the face of the earth? And what is God to do with all of our perversion except to wipe it out, not this time coming with water but with fire? And man has so marred, so marred the world that God has made that He has to say things like this. This is an example from Calvin. This is not my workmanship. This is not that man who was formed in my image and whom I had adorned with such excellent gifts. I do not deign now to acknowledge this degenerate and defiled creature as mine. What is God to do? except to bring the swiftness of His judgment against us. And so, yet, you have Noah actually doing this very thing. Noah standing firm with a righteous faith in God. God keeping Noah. God keeping Noah in the midst of this wickedness. God preserving Noah in the midst of this wickedness. Why? Because Noah was in and of himself better than the rest? No, because he found favor in God's sight. And you, church, saints of God, have found favor in God's sight. And God will keep you. He will keep you in His love. And He will keep you on the narrow way. And he will preserve you through a wicked world. And he will preserve you through his very judgment unto eternal salvation. So, all of the weirdness is not meant to. Some of you need to be very careful with this. Because you will. Some of you will kind of have a inordinate curiosity towards things that are dark and spiritual. And you need to be very careful. If you're a person who's kind of interested in dark things, occultish things just are dark things, you need to be very careful with this. The intent is not to just fuel endless curiosities and distractions from the point of what the text is getting at. I'm just giving you some things to help you understand God's world, to help you actually understand people who experience weird things in God's world better. But also, the point is to highlight how wicked the world becomes in its rebellion against God, and God absolutely is vindicated because of the world's wickedness in his judgment against it. So be careful that you don't take an inordinate curiosity, and then be very careful that you don't walk out of here and go... Oh, there's just another thing I can write off. Because you're just a materialist. Don't do that. That's faithless. It's faithless in the in God, and it's just you're going to live in ignorance and arrogance that you are wise in your own eyes, and that all of your opinions about things are superior to God Himself, and you are part of the problem. But be encouraged that Noah was saved through the flood. He was saved. And he was spared through its, the world's wickedness, and he was saved through the flood. Stand with me for prayer. Oh, Father, by your spirit, make something of this in the hearts and lives of your people to help us endure in godliness. Thank you that your church has found favor in your eyes and that you are the one keeping us and uh, preserving us unto yourself for salvation through judgment. It's true, the wicked will not stand in the judgment or in the assembly of the righteous, but we will by your favor and by the work of Christ in our place. You will hold us fast to yourself. You will keep us and you will grant to us by your grace enduring faith just as you did in Noah, uh, Noah and Noah's day for the faithful. So encourage our hearts that you will keep us in Jesus' name. Amen.